Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. On this episode, I bring Keith Weinhold back to the show and we go deep on the impact of COVID-19 on the U.S. rental property market. Now, I've been getting a lot of questions on this and I brought Keith back and we jammed for about an hour on a lot of the most important issues that you need to know in terms of how this affects real estate investors the housing market, and the rental market in the U.S. So we start off talking about the fundamental differences between the Great Recession of 2008-2009 versus what's going on today. We talk about the supply-demand dynamics that have been impacted and how that may affect both home prices and rental demand. We talk about the segmentation of the real estate market and how commercial real estate may be about to take a major hit, but there may actually be increased demand for residential investment properties, especially as people start moving out of densely populated apartment buildings and communal living situations into single family rental properties and why that sector might actually get quite a boost from what's going on now. Keith also talks about inflation and why he believes that we are about to enter a period of increased inflation and what you can do to position yourself to not only hedge against that, but actually profit from that, okay? So he talks about the importance of buying and owning hard assets and particularly residential rental property and how you can actually profit from inflation. He goes deep and explains exactly how that works. So that is all in this episode. And I also want to offer you a free consultation with my company, Maverick Investor Group, if you are interested in learning more about investing in U.S. rental properties. So we have been helping people since 2007 buy and hold rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, no matter where you live. It's totally turnkey. They've been fully renovated. They have tenants in place already paying rent. Local property managers already in place, collecting the rent, handling the maintenance, all that. So you can buy and own rental properties in the most advantageous U.S. markets from anywhere in the world. So you don't have to be the rehabber or the landlord. And if you're interested in having a discussion about that, about your personal real estate investing goals, about what's going on right now in the market, COVID-19, your individual situation, any of that kind of stuff, we'd be happy to answer your questions and support you as best we can in your real estate investing journey. So I just wanted to offer that as a free consult for 
all of the Maverick Show listeners, you can go to themaverickshow.com slash consult and just register for a time there to chat with us directly. And with that, let's get into the episode. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Keith Weinhold. He is the founder and owner of Get Rich Education, where he teaches people how to build wealth through buy and hold real estate investing. He is the host of one of the top financial podcasts, The Get Rich Education Show, which has millions of downloads in over 180 countries. He is also the international best-selling author of the book, Seven Money Myths That Are Killing Your Wealth Potential. He writes for Forbes. He writes for the Rich Dad Advisors blog, and he is a member of the Forbes Real Estate Council. Keith has been an active income property investor himself since 2002. He owns apartments in Alaska and single family income property across the continental U.S. Keith, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so good to be here. We have so much in common, Matt. We share a love for travel, for real estate, and even a little hip hop music. I'm so excited. You know, we are going <laughs> to save that for the end. We're just going to open a little loop here in the beginning, Keith. But I did not know that you were a hip hop fan on the last time I had you on the Maverick show, which, by the way, for anybody that hasn't heard that episode, it was episode number two. So really one of the foundational pillar early episodes, Keith. So I really consider yeah. you kind of one of the OGs uh, being in that <laughs> very early group of interviewees when I launched the Maverick show and, you know, really was interested introducing people what the show was going to be about. You were certainly a part of that. But at the time, I did not know that you and I were both hip hop fans. And so it is going to be at the end of the show today when I'm asking you the famous question to name your top five hip hop MCs of all time. You can think about it now and we'll return to that one at the end. But uh, I do want to just check in with you, my man, and see how you're doing. Where are you coming to us from today? And are you staying safe and healthy? Hey, my wife and I are healthy and we're sheltering in place in our home of all places in beautiful and pristine Anchorage, Alaska. That's where I've lived for over 15 years since moving here from Pennsylvania. So, yeah, we're doing great. Um, you know, the trailheads and the outdoor opportunities are still open and that is really the savior. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I am sheltering in place as well in Asheville, North Carolina, which is also an amazing place. It's yeah. Western North Carolina, the Blue Ridge Mountains. So there's a lot of open space, nature. You can jog around outside without coming in proximity to any other human being. So very, very fortunate to be here, especially as the weather uh, starts to get nice. You know, Keith, I also wanted to ask you, I want to just kind of open up the episode because as we're quarantined, a lot of us who travel are, of course, reminiscing about travel memories and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And uh, I know that you and your wife took a really epic international trip in Q1 of this year, right before the COVID-19 stuff really escalated. And uh, you and I were texting and emailing back and forth. You were telling me you were going to go to 
India and you're going to go to Oman, go to Dubai. And I was texting you, go to this restaurant, go do this thing and all that. You and I actually have not chatted about how the trip went since you got back from that. So I would love to just hear a little bit about, you know, what were some of the highlights and reflections from that trip? Yeah, a lot of people probably don't even remember what vacationing was, let alone you haven't even planned out a weekend in a few months at this point amidst the pandemic that we're in. But now my wife and I did a cruise and rather doing a cruise to the Caribbean, like a lot of Americans and Canadians do, I wanted to go to a different place. So we went to four nations on the cruise, Sri Lanka, India, Dubai, and Oman. And it's really a pretty efficient way to see things. Now we had Singapore and Thailand cut off from the trip due to the mountain COVID concerns there at the time. But we just got this trip in under the wire. And, you know, really the highlight, Matt, I think the best thing that my wife and I did on our vacation is visit a slum. And now you wouldn't think that. But the world's largest slum is what some people consider Dharavi, D-H-A-R-A-V-I. It's in the northern part of Mumbai, a giant city of 20 million people. And I actually found that to be the most fascinating. Now, you might wonder, well, why would you want to spend part of your vacation, your discretionary time that you're paying well for in this limited time that you have on Earth in a slum? And really, the short answer is because it's just something so different than what I've ever seen. I've seen slums in Philadelphia, in Bangkok, in Manila. But to really do a tour of one and get inside one, I learned things about the slums that I would not have thought. Like, for example, there's a substantial amount of industry and business inside a slum. I think a lot of people just think about one living and residing there. Plastic recycling is the number one business in Dharavi. There's pottery making there, for example. So I really saw a lot of industrious people at work. And you know what the most interesting thing is? I didn't get propositioned by one panhandler. No one asked me for money at all. So just to tell you a little something about the culture and the pride and the industriousness of the people. And Anchorage, Alaska is a city of 300,000, a beautiful place, but I get hit up by panhandlers all the time. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, another thing that I was so glad that you got to experience while you were in India was the diversity within India. Like a lot of people don't understand. They think just like, oh, India, you know, maybe it's a like if they've never been there, they might just think of it. Oh, that's like a country. But India is enormous, both geographically and population wise. And there's so many different cultures and so many different languages and traditions, religions and just, you know, geographical differences when you go from one part of the country to the other. And I know you also got to spend some time, I think, in Goa and then in the south in Kerala and and check out the backwaters. And so what was that like? Yeah, India is so incredibly large and diverse, to your point. And it does have a population of almost 1.4 billion people now. A lot of people don't realize that within five years, India will be the most populous nation in the world, surpassing China, even though India only has one third the area of China. But yeah, Matt, you informed me about the Kerala province, K-E-R-A-L-A, the southwesternmost province of India. We visited the backwaters and had a nice houseboat ride there. But really the interesting thing, from where our cruise ship docked, it was a two-hour drive one direction to the backwaters of Alapuza, this tour that you recommended I go on. You're a great tour consultant. You know, I reached out to you a couple <laughs> months before the trip and you were uh, you had plenty of enthusiasm about recommending places. But the big takeaway that I had in Kerala, which you told me is the most educated and really one of the better off states in India The interesting thing is this entire two-hour ride, there weren't any freeways. It was two-lane and four-lane highways. 
there was no open space there, like none. Everything was developed the entire way. And there are a lot of these not so proud looking buildings, almost always three stories or less in height. And the entire two hour ride, there was not one business I could recognize as a franchise business. No Starbucks, no Burger King, nothing like that. So actually, it's a world of entrepreneurship, but there was zero open space. Yeah, it really is. And it's such an important contrast, I think, from different parts of India, because you do see as you go around India, there is, of course, extreme poverty and, and things of that nature in India. But then you go to a place like Kerala, which actually has the lowest poverty rate of any state in India. It is yeah. the highest literacy rate. It is the cleanest state, you know, uh, in India. And so it's really important, I think, to get around and see the diversity of any country that you're going to. And then, of course, Keith, the food. I have to ask, how is the food on your trip, man? Terrific. Indian is actually my favorite food. So to get the vindaloos and the masalas, um, we even took one specific tour that was a spice market tour when we were in Mumbai. Mumbai was the last of the places that we visited in India. So yeah, we really immersed in the food. We usually preferred lamb dishes. You can get a lot of lamb dishes in India. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. I'm so glad you guys got that and, and got to squeeze it in safely before the whole COVID thing erupted. So let's use that now, though, as a transition to talk about the COVID-19 period, specifically as it relates to real estate investors and yeah. real estate investing decisions, Keith. And I want to start, I think the best place to start and what I'd like to ask you is just to give us a little bit of historical context within which we can have this discussion. Because right now, we are in the midst of a recession. It's, of course, not officially called that yet because they don't call it that until afterwards. But it's pretty right. clear that we're going to have two consecutive quarters of flatter declining GDP, which is the definition of a recession. And when people hear the word recession, a lot of people think back and their association is what happened in 2008, what happened in 2009, you know, and all of that stuff that was going on with the real estate market. But in fact, there are a lot of differences between what's going on right now and what happened back then, especially with respect to real estate. And I was wondering if you can just sort of contextualize that for us a little bit historically, Keith, and tell us a little bit about, you know, what was going on with the last recession and what are the, some of the differences that are going on right now? Oh, I'd love to. And you defined it absolutely correctly. A recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of year-over-year -year GDP contraction, the gross domestic product, which is the sum total value of all the goods and services produced in a society. And we learned quarter one of this year had a minus 4.8% GDP. So there we go. We're on our way to the recession. And yeah, most people's frame of reference is with the Great Recession, also known as the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. And, you know, something interesting, Matt, I've said it before a few years ago, you know, if residential real estate, which is what you and I invest in, if residential real estate ever got into any deep trouble, it's so recession resilient that a lot of really weird things would have to be going on in society. Well, guess what? A lot of really weird things are going on in society. You know, now my wife's cutting my hair, for example, at home. So I think another thing to keep in mind when it comes to your psychology is keep in mind that in good times, like this 11-year economic expansion that America just ended, which was a record, in good times, people think there will never be bad times. 
But in bad times, like we're in now, people are sort of predisposed to think that we're never going to have good times again, but we surely will. And periods of economic prosperity trump those of recession over the long term. A little more reference, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, that resulted in a seven-month recession, and that 1918 pandemic killed up to 50 million people worldwide, which is substantially more than what we think that COVID-19 is going to take. And yes, you can't correlate death count with recession rate, but that's just one point of intersection there. The 2008 event was different than today's recession, I think chiefly because the 2008 event, that centered on real estate in the Great Recession. That was the center of it. Irresponsible loans were being made. You're probably hearing the acronym NINJA, N-I-N-J-A. It stands for the fact that people with no income, no job or assets could still get a loan. So people got loans that really couldn't afford to make the payments over time. They were banking on appreciation and the fact that they'd get to pull cash out of their property, but that all imploded. Another interesting thing that was going on in 2008, the center of the global financial crisis, which is opposite this event that we have now, is back then housing supply exceeded demand. So with these irresponsible loans, people were buying vacant investment properties and just holding them on for speculative investment. Well, there weren't any fundamentals with that. There wasn't a rent income stream with that. That was irresponsible. And I think another important thing to remember when we compare and contrast the last recession 12 years ago with this one is prior to the last recession, we had this big boom run up in prices. We had this massive appreciation, year over year real estate appreciation in some markets back then of 20%, 30%, 40%, even 50% in some places like Las Vegas and Phoenix. Well, that wasn't sustainable back then. We're in the opposite condition now. And just one interesting point is that the unemployment peak reached 10% back in 2008. It's going to be higher here in this current recession, which I call the great shutdown. That's what I call this 2020 event. So for this 2020 event, it's centered on a pandemic where the 2008 event was centered on real estate. We're in the opposite condition because now housing demand exceeds the supply, especially for for some of these low to middle class assets, Matt, like you and I favor investing in where you can get that good income stream. We still have an undersupply of 3.3 million units of housing, and it's especially skewed toward that investor advantage area that I just described. And another difference is that we didn't have that unsustainable run up in price appreciation like we did 12 years ago. Home prices were appreciating at 3 or 4% leading up to this recession. So that's why I don't think you can characterize a housing bubble at all. So those are some of the differences between the 2008 event and the 2020 event. No two recessions are alike, and there's no exception to that here. Well, let's dive into some of that a little bit deeper, Keith. I think that's a really important context. And, you know, Maverick Investor Group, what we did, you know, looking at what happened with the last recession and coming out of the last recession, what we've been doing for the last decade 
is specifically helping people buy those recession resilient rental properties, right? So you're talking about, first of all, buying in the right markets, which are the investor advantaged real estate markets, not the crazy cyclical roller coaster, super expensive markets. So buying in the right markets, then buying in the right price point, not buying super high end luxury housing, which is, you know, much more. It's the first thing to be exposed, right? When you come to any kind of market downturn, but buying in that really high demand, you know, starter home sort of areas in the places where people want to live, where there's affordable cost of living, where there's jobs being created and being able to sort of invest in those and then doing your cash flow analysis so that you're not speculating on home price appreciation, right? As you mentioned, one of the core, core components of why people lost in the last downturn is that they were speculating. They were buying properties yeah. that had no chance of having a positive cash flow with a 30-year principal and interest fixed mortgage and all of the regular expenses associated with it. And people didn't care because they were just going to try to flip it and speculate and make a capital gain. And so what we've done with Maverick Investor Group from day one, as you know, Keith, because you refer your listeners to buy their properties through Maverick because you and I have the same philosophy on this is, of course, helping people to buy properties where they can make money the day that they close and not have to speculate on future appreciation. They make money when they buy because they're buying a performing cash flowing asset in an investor advantage market. And they're on the supply side of a high demand equation, right? Which is recession resilient. So let's talk a little bit about the supply and demand dynamic. Keith, that's the first thing I want to dive into to what you said. Can you talk a little bit more and explain that a little bit deeper? Because, you know, for example, uh, you know, if people have been sending me articles that, you know, the number of total home transactions has declined. And sometimes the way people refer to that is real estate sales have dropped 15%. People are like, oh my gosh, real estate sales have dropped 15%. That must mean that there's a, a, you know, the housing market is tanking. Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that there's 15% less transactions. What's going to impact what the housing market does relates to the supply and demand dynamic. Did it, did the transactions decline 15% because there was a 15% drop in supply? Or was it that there was a 15% drop in demand? Or was it sort of evenly spread between both? And these are some of the nuances that that are really important for people to look into and understand. And I'm wondering if you can just give us sort of that overview, Keith, of what's going on right now with the supply and demand dynamic, particularly for these residential rental properties that you and I both talk about. Yeah, that's a great question because the fundamental economics 101 really is a function of supply versus demand. However, there does have to have to be a capacity to pay behind that demand. I mean, you could demand a drink of water in the desert all you want, but there's no water in the desert. It takes, you know, money to buy things, to buy services. And yeah, you bring up an interesting point. A lot of people might read a headline that home sales have declined by 15% well, that doesn't mean prices have declined. We're talking about the amount of the inventory available. In fact, if you read that the sale of homes declined 15%, and that's reflective of the fact that there's less inventory available, well, that's scarcity. That's less supply. So at the same demand, prices could be increasing partly due to the fact that sales have been declining, meaning that there's less inventory. So that's really what's centered on the supply-demand fundamental. I think the important thing to keep in mind with home prices as it relates to supply and demand is we're talking about something, residential real estate, that is going to continue to have sufficient demand. We're not talking about 
investing in a theme park with roller coasters or something else that people don't need. We're not talking about the Instagram influencer economy, which is something else that's a discretionary thing to do. We're talking about things people need. And in fact, when it comes to demand, demand for housing is actually going up in a sense because housing has become the center of people's life. You know, people are now turning their homes into gyms and people are using Zoom teleconferencing software to commute from home. I think prices are either going to stay about the same or that real estate prices could drop mildly, five to seven percent overall until they turn around, maybe. And when it comes to the COVID crisis, I think a really important thing for one to understand is that. We have something as investors or as primary residence owners, whenever we have a mortgage on either of those types of properties, we have something called mortgage loan forbearance, which gives us the ability to postpone payments. And that's really important to the market when we think about supply and demand, because thank goodness we do have this option for mortgage loan forbearance. Homeowners can postpone payments for up to 180 days if they want to, and then they can get an extension on that. But when it comes to supply and demand, forbearance benefits you, the homeowner or the rental property owner, even if you don't declare forbearance. And what's the reason for that? Well, forbearance protects and stabilizes values. Because if you think about it, if a homeowner could not pay their mortgage and they didn't have this forbearance option, Well, then they'd have to sell. A lot of homeowners would have to sell because a lot of them have lost their job in this recession. Well, if a lot of people are selling and putting that glut of supply on the market, that would make housing prices cave in. So forbearance actually helps support housing prices and keeps the supply low. I think that's a really important point, Keith. And I think also in terms of this concept of demand, You know, when people talk about real estate in general, it's such a broad concept that it's not really that relevant to talk about real estate in general because there's so many different segments of the real estate market. So I think there are some segments of the real estate market that are going to take a major hit, particularly in the commercial realm, right? One of the things that this uh, pandemic and the entire shelter in place experience is demonstrating for people is that actually, a lot more of your staff can actually work from home than maybe you expected or maybe you thought traditionally. And so you and I, of course, Keith, have been location independent for years, but there have been a lot of very traditional employers that have been hesitant to go in a fully remote or a mostly remote direction. And now what they're realizing is actually my employees can deliver from home. And actually, that's going to cut 30% of my overhead if I don't have to pay for these offices. And so I think this is going to result in a declining demand for things like office space. I think there's already been a trend for declining demand for retail space, and this is going to further accelerate that. And all of those trends too, Keith, are actually driving people back to the home. It all goes back to the home, right? It actually raises the utility value of the home itself because it's not just a place where you live and sleep. Now it's you can work there, you can shop there, you can do all these other things, right? Yeah, the crisis has not changed the fact that people need a place to live. So for example, for me, with my portfolio, you know, we talk about segmentation of the real estate market and I invest in bread and butter residential, I'm still getting 95 to 100% of the rent income. And when it comes to investing in businesses, 
it helps to think about your residential real estate portfolio as a business. Think about who is not getting 95 to 100% of their income now, like many residential real estate investors are. Hotels aren't, restaurants aren't, gyms aren't, bars aren't, cruise ship lines. You can go on and on. Some of these companies only getting 30% or so of the revenue that they usually expect to get. Now, you do have a few on the other end, like large retailers. They might be getting 105, 110% of their income, but so many industries are under so much distress, they're going to have to be completely transformed, getting maybe 20, 30, 40% of their usual income. Residential real estate investors, because of that utility, because of that demand, are still getting close to 100%. And yeah, when you bring up market segmentation, of course, we can think of that in a lot of different ways. We can think of that as commercial versus residential. We can think about that in a geographic sense. We can also think about that in single family homes, I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Versus apartments, because there are some different dynamics there too. Keith, that I think is actually going to be one of the most important dynamics and one of the most significant things that may come out of this COVID-19 experience, which is the desire for people to move to less dense areas and to move out of this apartment building style living with shared laundry rooms and shared mail rooms and shared gyms and all that kind of stuff and to transition into these detached single family homes where they can have a safe private space for their family and not be required to have such close dense interaction with other people to do their basic things. And, you know, the property managers that I've been talking to, Keith, they're already starting to see this trend where people are moving their families out of apartment buildings into single family rental properties. Right. And just in general, single family homes tend to be in suburban and rural areas and apartment buildings, of course, tend to be closer to the urban core. I own both single family homes and apartment buildings. For years, I favored loading up on single family homes. And this crisis has exacerbated that entire effect even more because I'll tell you, in my apartment buildings, some pretty weird things are going on there. Tenants don't feel safe sharing things with other families. And oftentimes in apartment buildings, tenants share common hallways, common railings, maybe a common storage area. A lot of times it comes down to the laundry room. You know, for a while, we're talking about closing my apartment's laundry rooms because it wasn't safe for different tenant families to mingle. And then we figured out something where people have to schedule a time. That way, there's only one person in there at a time with a substantial cleaning in between. So there are definitely a lot of concerns 
for apartments and people are not going to favor communal dwelling as much in the future. So there could be both a de-urbanization and this whole uh, reticence about living in apartments. Absolutely. Absolutely, Keith. Now, the other aspect of what's going on right now today in this era that I want to ask you about is the concept of inflation or (laughs) acts that could potentially be inflationary. So people are seeing stimulus bills and trillions of dollars of money being injected into the economy and things like that. And I want to ask you about the potential impact of this on real estate for real estate investors. Um, But maybe just, Keith, at a very basic level, just to kind of start and contextualize this, can you just talk a little bit about what inflation is, what types of things cause inflation, you know, and what are your thoughts on what all of this stuff that's happening right now is leading to with respect to inflation? Yeah, with the pandemic, There are short-term concerns like unemployment. Is your tenant going to have a job? Is your tenant going to be able to pay the rent? And there are legitimate short-term concerns, even for a residential real estate investor. But long-term, things are quite favorable for real estate investors. I mentioned that lack of supply relative to demand. And another one is the fact that the Fed's monetary policy has set us up such that inflation could become quite high. We could be seeing a doubling, a complete doubling of the money supply in just the next one to two years. So if we just take a step back, what is inflation? Inflation is the diminished purchasing power of the dollar over time. And you, the listener, as a kid, you probably experienced inflation, although in the past couple decades, we have not experienced as much. I mean, growing up, I remember buying a pack of Topps baseball cards, and that cost 30 cents. I'd soon learn the next year it was 35 cents. And then I just became used to, accustomed to expecting, oh, well, a pack of Topps baseball cards is going to cost 40 cents next year and 45 cents the following. And it sure did. Now, as an adult, you might see inflation reflected in the fact that your Chipotle burrito is the same today as it was a year ago with the same ingredients and the same weight, but it costs $9 today and it did $8 a year or two ago or whatever. So that's where inflation manifests itself. The interesting thing that we have setting up now with the COVID crisis The reason inflation could stoke is I just talked about how we're going to have a doubling of the currency supply, most likely, in just the next couple years. But at the same time, we have this drop in manufacturing. Places are shut down. They're not producing as many goods and services as they had. So when you have too many dollars chasing too few goods, that is a scenario for inflation. So as we move forward, Keith, and people are thinking about what do I do with my money? What's the smartest investment? Should I hold on to my cash? Should I invest into the stock market? Should I buy real estate? How should people think about what's a smart investing decision at a time like this looking forward? I think it's still good to have some cash. Don't completely eat into your emergency fund if you don't have to, because we never really know what's going to happen in the future with this pandemic. I think it's smart to purchase hard assets for one thing, because a hard asset, it holds its capital value in inflation. With more of these dollars introduced, each dollar 
buys an ever smaller fraction of that real thing that has real utility. I'm talking about things like water and timber and residential real estate, a real asset where people need to live. Maybe having a small position in gold, gold being that classic inflation hedge, but mostly and overall, you want to be in a real asset for these reasons. And you also want to be in an asset that pays you multiple ways at the same time. Like I talked about with you back on episode two, I won't get into the detail because I covered it then, but real estate pays you five ways at the same time. And you also have to think, well, compared to what? When you think about investing in something like real estate compared to stocks, I mean, that's a real crapshoot. Price to earnings ratios are inflated by a lot of historic measures, even with the drop in the stock market that we saw in the pandemic. Gold, again, it really only goes up with about the rate of inflation over time. Bonds aren't providing any yield. Cryptocurrency, maybe, but that's a big question mark. But a hard asset like real estate, when it pays you five ways at the same time, here's the interesting thing. Let's say that the pandemic has a more adverse effect on real estate than we're even expecting. And we don't get any appreciation in our real estate for the next few years. We'll just call it zero. We'll say somehow you don't get any cash flow either. We'll say that these payments that the tenants are getting from the government and from unemployment somehow don't keep coming through. And that results in a zero cash flow scenario as well. But with a principal pay down on your property that your tenant makes for you, that's often a 5% return alone. That being the monthly principal pay down that they make for you divided by your skin in the game, that's often 5%. Another 5% from the generous tax incentives that you get from providing housing and another 2% from the inflation profiting benefit when you tie up long-term fixed interest rate debt. And I can talk about that later, but you still got a five, a five and a two there. That would still be a 12% return from three sources, tenant made principal pay down, generous tax advantages and the inflation profiting benefit, even if you don't get any appreciation or cash flow. So really the takeaway is With inflation, it helps you to hold a hard asset in an asset that can pay you potentially so many different ways at the same time. That's why I'm a real estate fan. Keith, and one of the really important things that you said is to buy the hard asset, meaning the actual deeded freehold real property, the physical house and owning it outright yourself. There's a lot of you know, language these days about real estate investing, and then somebody's trying to sell them a, you know, buy into a syndication or buy some sort of real estate backed security or buy into a real estate investment trust, or for that matter, do some, some wholesaling or some flipping and some, you know, quick generation of some capital gains, maybe. And a lot of that stuff is not favorable for the reasons that you're describing. In order to get all of the benefits you're describing, you actually need to own the deeded hard asset and own the physical house yourself, right? That's right. And that way you're in control when you have the deed to the property yourself. You can make your own decisions based on what's best for you and what's best with that particular property. We're in a low interest rate environment, but people think interest rates can go even lower. So therefore, if rates go lower, you have the ability to refinance. But if unexpectedly they go higher, will you just hold and stay right where you're at then? You can play both sides of this. So this is an example of how you can be in control. And I'm glad that you brought up flippers. I mean, there's nothing wrong with flipping. It's a valid way to make money. It's just riskier than buy and hold real estate investing because during your flip period, 
you have to hope that capital prices of real estate don't go down in a market or you could be left holding the bag. Maybe as a flipper, you could go ahead and rent that out for cash flow, but a lot of the best flips don't usually work that way. And you've limited the number of ways in which you can be paid. So as a buy and hold real estate investor, I like to be paid those multiple ways and buy from day one in those markets that are investor advantage for cash flow more so than flipping. Exactly, Keith. And I think it's really important, the five different profit centers that real estate investors have paying them at the same time. And again, you mentioned we went through that in episode two. I'd encourage everybody to listen to that episode again. But the reason that's so important is just for what you said, which is that let's say somebody thinks that the home prices are going to go down a little bit, maybe 5% or 7%, you know, which was sort of your worst case scenario projection, you know, but I haven't heard anybody that says they think that five years from now, home prices are going to be lower than they are today, right? I mean, prices have been going up 5% a year or so in most of the markets, if they were to go down 5%, and then back up 5%, you know, that's not something that should rattle you as a buy and hold real estate investor, because you're making money from all of these other sources. So you don't have to speculate. You don't have to try to time the top of the market, time the bottom of the market, and worry about yeah. exactly what your property is worth on a day-to-day -day basis, because you're already getting paid from these other sources. That's right. And of course, inflation itself could make the dollar-denominated price of real estate go up. If there's a little bit less demand for real estate and prices would want to drop, well, you have inflation tugging on that dollar-denominated price. Yeah. Keith, let's go into that right now. I want to go a little bit deeper with you on this whole question of inflation. So if yeah. there is inflation coming and people are going to buy those hard assets, buy those residential investment properties today, how exactly does it work? Can you break it down for us and explain how buying and holding rental properties is not only a hedge against inflation to protect you from it, but it's actually a way that you can proactively profit from inflation. How does that work? Yeah, that's right. It actually might have you, the listener consumer, cheering for your Chipotle burrito price to increase because that's reflective of inflation. and. The way inflation benefits a real estate investor is pretty stealthy, and it really benefits a real estate investor that takes out a loan, taking out just that plain vanilla loan, that 30-year fixed amortizing loan. Well, if you can take out one of those loans and borrow at 4%, if inflation were higher than 4%, you already win just in an arbitrage game. Real estate investors, when they have a loan, they win what I call the inflation triple crown. And the reason that a real estate investor benefits three ways at the same time is number one, with the asset price, number two, with the debt debasement, and thirdly, they benefit from a monthly cash flow that rises even greater than this rate of inflation. So with the first way, a real estate investor with a loan benefits with asset price inflation is just say there's a 10% inflation over time, whether that's a year, whether it's more than that. Well, if a real estate investor, for example, owns a $1 million property, well, all right, then that property goes up to $1.1 million in price. And one might be thinking, well, so what? How would that benefit me if a dollar buys 10% less, but my property is worth 10% more in dollars. How am I better off is what they're thinking. You're better off when you have a loan because on that $1 million property, 
you've probably only got something like a $200,000 down payment into that property. So like your building went from $1 million in value up to 1.1. Well, guess what happens to your 200K down payment? That goes up to 300K. That's a 50% return. You just got a 50% return on your down payment, even though the asset only provided a 10% return due to this 10% inflation. If you want to call that, you just benefited from what's known as financial leverage. And then the second out of three ways, the second element of this inflation triple crown is your debt debasement. Let's just say in an example, you have $1 million of debt. Of course, your tenant should be servicing that, making the monthly payments for you, principal and interest. But if we have 10% inflation on your million-dollar property, you only owe the bank 900 k after one year, if you have 10% inflation in a year, and 800K the second year, and you only owe the bank back 700K in the third year, and so on. The bank doesn't ask to be paid back in inflation adjusted dollars. They only ask to be paid back in what's called nominal dollars. Nominal means in name only, not real dollars. And you're profiting from inflation in this way because you have a loan. And then the third way, a real estate investor benefits from inflation is the fact that your monthly cash flow, cash flows, income minus expenses, your cash flow rises faster than inflation. And that is because chiefly your mortgage payment, that principal and interest is fixed. It's the same all 30 years. So let's say, for example, you have a unit, it rents for $1,000 a month and you have $800 in expenses. Well, that's a $200 cash flow. But if you had just, say, 5% inflation now, well, you should be able to bump the rent from 1000 up to 1050 But your cash flow goes from 200 up to $250. That's a 25% return on your cash flow, the money that you feel in your pocket every month. So this is what I call the inflation triple crown. Real estate investors with loans win this on the asset price on the debt debasement, and on the monthly cash flow. So start hoping that burrito at Chipotle costs more because that (laughs) might be a sign that there's inflation out there. Inflation impoverishes most people, but it enriches people with smart debt on a cash flowing asset. All right, Keith. Now, let me go a little bit deeper into the rental situation right now, okay? Because people are seeing news about high unemployment happening, an increasing number of rental defaults and tenants unable to pay the rent, uh, at least on time. And they're hearing about an eviction moratorium. So how should people be navigating all this and understanding it right now? That's a great point, Matt, because you really bring up the crux of the problem for a real estate investor today. Whether you're a seasoned investor or whether you're a brand new investor, you've got to be asking yourself, how can the rent reliably be paid if the unemployment rate is going up like it has? And I don't think this is going to be all smoothed over within the next month where we're going to be back to three and a half or 4% unemployment like we were before the crisis. It's just not going to happen that fast. So there's a few things to keep in mind. First of all, Fewer homeowners can qualify for loans now, including those first-time homebuyers. For example, Chase was one of the first banks to tighten their mortgage loan requirements. For example, they made the minimum FICO score 700, and now you have to put at least a 20% down payment on a home, not just 3%. And now you need more reserve requirement. Well, what do those more stringent standards do? That means that fewer people can qualify to buy a home 
And that increases the number of people in the renter pool. So that can help increase rental demand, but that's slow. That's long-term. I really see rent amounts staying about the same as they are now, Matt, until inflation kicks in, which it's going to take a good three years for this inflation to kick in with with what I'm talking about here. But you bring up the eviction moratorium. That's got to concern some people. So your tenant during this eviction moratorium, they don't need to pay you the rent. And as I discussed before with mortgage loan forbearance, you actually don't need to pay the mortgage either. Most tenants are paying the rent. This is my experience in my portfolio. I have a big enough sample size where I can look at the fact that tenants are still paying the rent 95 to 100% of the time, as long as you bought a property right. So no one can guarantee that your tenant is going to pay you the rent during this moratorium. But like I said, you also don't have to pay your mortgage. And you know what, Matt? Actually, another thing that no one talks about is when you're a real estate investor, it helps to think about, you know, where your tenant is getting income from. And that's and that that's going to continue because you use their payment for your cash flow and control the loan. But tenants are having reduced expenses in their life right now, just like I am. I looked at my recent Bank of America card statement that came in, Matt, and the amount I owe is the lowest on that in a while. Now, why would that be? Well, I can't go anywhere. You and I talked about our love for travel, but everything's shut down. But even at the tenant level, you know, people aren't going out to restaurants and concerts and bars. They're not spending as much. So I think these are a few of the reasons why more tenants have shown this wherewithal to pay the rent so far in the pandemic than what we expected. Yeah. And I think, you know, Keith, in terms of buying new rental properties now that, you know, for somebody that's thinking about, hey, I might want to acquire additional properties at this time to position myself to be in place to take advantage of these increasing, you know, these trends that we're talking about with, you know, potentially coming inflation and potentially people moving out of apartments and wanting to rent single family homes and all these kind of trends. And somebody that wants to be on the supply side of those demand dynamics, you know, one of the things to think about is that eviction moratorium that was in the CARES Act was for about six months, I think. So it goes until maybe September of 2020. And so if you're buying new rental properties, you have to remember that you're going to qualify your tenant before they move in. So you're going to, you know, verify their employment. Does this person have a job? You anticipate that they'll continue to have this job. And you're going to re-qualify that tenant when they move in. And for that matter, you know, by the time you put a property under contract, you know, go through the mortgage process and close on that property, you know, that could be, you know, let's say you do that in June or, you know, July 1st. Well, if that tenant moves in on July 1st, they're going to pay first month's, last month's deposit. That's July, August, September. So, you know, you're, you're going to basically have yourself covered probably for the duration of that you know, eviction moratorium if you're buying a new rental property right now and you're re-qualifying the tenant to make sure that, you know, your tenant does still have a job because there's plenty of industries right now, as you mentioned, Keith, that have actually gotten a boost, you know, that have more demand right now than they did before. And there's plenty of people in those industries that need to rent houses and are trying to move out of apartments into single family homes. So you can certainly find qualified tenants uh, and put them into your uh, properties if you're going to buy new ones. So I think that's an important thing to remember as well. 
That's a great point. It's actually such a good point. It's something I brought up on my show recently that this is a more concern with who's going to get the rent paid and how soon is it going to get paid with the existing properties that you have rather than your new ones because we're in this new economy. So now you're going to filter and screen tenants. And hey, if you have a tenant that works for a large retailer like an Amazon or an Instacart or a Walmart, they're doing more business than ever these days. So now you can put that new layer, that new filter on them. And of course, I'd bring up the fact too that, and you know this, Matt, there really is no such thing as a national real estate market. Things are regional. So it's not really a great time to be investing in an area where entertainment and tourism are a big component of the economy, like a Las Vegas, for example. Of course, you can segment that by the submarket as well. Maybe if you have property close to Las Vegas medical facilities, that would be different. And think about things regionally as well. Oil economies are probably going to be really bad off for a substantial amount of time. We're thinking about places like North Dakota and parts of Colorado and West Texas and Alaska. All those places are more vulnerable. So yeah, these are some things to think about for new real estate investors. Yeah, I think that's really, really important, Keith. And, you know, we focus, as you know, Maverick Investor Group focuses on identifying those investor advantaged markets that have recession resilient dynamics and indicators there. And that's where our clients are buying. And, you know, your listeners that are coming to Maverick, that's where we're helping them buy. And by the way, folks, if anybody wants to do a one on one consult with us just to talk about your situation, whether you have real estate investment properties right now and you have questions about how to handle certain things, or you're interested in exploring if buying right now is the right time for you, given your situation and your goals and all that, you can register for a free consult. At, you just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult, and you can register there and we will do a free one-on-one consult with you to understand your situation and talk to you and strategize with you about the best options for you right now. But there is definitely, because some people are either unqualified and unable to buy Keith, or they're just sort of scared and wanting to hold on to their cash for a little while longer, there is actually a pretty good selection of properties better than normal in a lot of these investor advantage markets for those people that want to step forward and you know get into those hard assets in those high demand areas to benefit from all of these upcoming trends. Yeah, and I can vouch for you and Maverick there. Right from the beginning, you always pay close attention to that resilient market. We're talking about non-flashy places that have that resilience, like in Indianapolis and Kansas City. That's been part of the Maverick recipe from day one. Absolutely, Keith. Awesome. All right. And at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. The lightning round. All right, buddy. First question. I know that fitness is a huge part of your life. It's really important to you. And I want to just ask if you could give folks a tip for remaining fit during this quarantine, during this lockdown, especially if they might be in more of a confined space and they don't have access to the great outdoors. If I could give two quick tips on this one, all you need for a great workout is you and the floor. It's remarkable what you can do with no equipment. Now, if you're training for power lifting or something like that, you know, that's probably not right for you. But for most people, that's really all you need. And Google something like uh, actually go to YouTube and enter HIT workout, H-I-I-T workout. It stands for high intensity interval training. It's a great way to work out. Or my favorite guy to follow on Instagram for workout ideas 
is, is gravfit, G-R-A-V underscore F-I-T-T. That'll give you a lot of great ideas. It only takes you in the floor. Awesome. We'll link all this stuff up in the show notes, by the way, folks. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and just go to the Keith Weinhold episode and grab uh, the links to everything we are discussing here today. Next question, Keith, if you were to go able to go back in time now, knowing everything that you know, and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Keith? Take more risks. Go ahead and ask that hot girl out that you were afraid to ask out. You know, with time, I've learned that regret really doesn't come from your failures in life. Regret comes from not trying things. I think said another way, have a life of oh wells rather than a life of what ifs. So bottom line, take more risks. I love that. That's awesome, man. All right, Keith. Now, I have finally discovered that you, like me, are a hip-hop fan. Yeah. I was actually a hip-hop DJ during the 90s, uh, from 91 to 99, really during the golden era. And I want to ask you, I'm going to ask you your top five hip-hop MCs of all time. Before I ask you that, I just want to give you sort of a little bit of a, a opportunity to preface this, because I am curious, you know, just... For you to share, what does hip-hop mean to you? What do you love about it? How did you get into it? What does it mean to you? It's more about the music than it is the lifestyle. And I was somewhat scorned by my high school classmates when I showed a liking for this. And I really was the first one in my class to show a liking for rap music. And growing up in rural Appalachian, Pennsylvania, urban environments just seemed exotic and interesting to me. It was so different. What hip hop music does for me today, I think more than anything, it gives me workout motivation. It boosts my energy to be around this type of music. And I know this might come as a disconnect to some people because I'm a pretty quiet guy that skis and mountaineers and likes to talk about the economy. So maybe this just doesn't mesh with, you know, rappers' personal lives or some of the profanity that they use. I mean, that's not what I'm in this for. And, you know, Matt, I think the best way I can describe it, you know, is that this music just simply sounds better than anything else. And that's all the reason I need to like it. I love that, man. I couldn't agree more. Hip hop is so global and it's, you know, has such universal appeal. And that's why I always love hearing different people's perspective on it. You know, they gravitate towards it. So with that, Keith, we're going to close out the lightning round with the final question, which is who are your top five hip-hop MCs of all time. And I should actually, before you name them, I should give our audience a little preface that I gave you this question before the show. I told you it was coming. Yeah. And as you were pondering it, you responded to me and you said, can I name the entire Wu-Tang Clan as one choice? And I said, <laughs> and I said well, that would be apropos. It's something that Keith Weinhold would do to get the best ROI on his hip-hop picks by getting nine MCs for the price of one. But I said, okay, I'll, I said, I'll allow it. I'll let you do it. Uh, but if you do name the Wu-Tang Clan, I do though want you to name me who your favorite MC in the Wu-Tang Clan is as we go through that one. But I just wanted to throw that preface out there. Yeah, this is one question that I thought about already because you told me about it the other day. And yeah, I thought this through more when I was on the treadmill this morning. In fact, in my top five hip hop MCs of all time, they're all from New York City and they're all old school. So it's during that golden era that I think four out of these five really contributed to it while you were that DJ. So 
even though the Pandora station I listen to when I work out currently is Kendrick Lamar, someone new school, I don't know, the algorithm has kind of tuned my preferences, I guess, to some of these old school guys I'm mentioning. So we'll go chronological order here. Number one is Rock Kim from Eric B and Rock Kim. He had that distinctive, deep, smooth flow. The Rock Kim was never quite a household name. He was just someone that was really well known in the hip hop community. Then I've got to go with two from the Wu-Tang Clan, the RZA and Ghost. Ghostface Killer, they've just got these vocals that pierce the Staten Island sky that you just want to listen to over and over again. The fourth out of five is Biggie, the late Notorious B.I.G. And then I've got to round it out because of his longevity and his crisp, witty, baritone tones is Jay-Z. So those are my top five. Rakim, RZA, Ghost, Biggie, and Jay-Z. There you go. I love it, man. Those are amazing picks because I i mean, New York City hip hop from the 90s was exactly where my heart is as well, man. So that made me yeah. so happy and I wanted to get that on the show, man. That's awesome. So, all right, Keith, I want you to let folks know how they can find you, how they can follow you, how they can listen to the Get Rich Education podcast and come into your universe. Well, thanks so much. A lot of what we talked about today, especially breaking down those five ways real estate investors are paid, are in my international best-selling book that you mentioned there at the top of the show, Matt. It's a quick read. It's only 84 pages long. It's called Seven Money Myths That Are Killing Your Wealth Potential. You can currently get that book, not just the chapter, but the whole thing free at GetRichEducation.com. And then, yeah, check out the Get Rich Education podcast. I talk about how real estate makes ordinary people wealthy every week. I'm on there myself. A lot of times I do monologue episodes. And sometimes I have uh, some of the better known names in real estate join me. Robert Kiyosaki's run alongside me for an episode three different times. Grant Cardone, all the best known people. Check me out at the Get Rich Education podcast and GetRichEducation.com. Awesome. We are going to link all of that up in one place in the show notes. So you can just go to themaverickshow.com and go to the show notes for the Keith Weinhold episode. And there you're going to find links to everything we discussed in this episode. And folks, remember, if you'd like to get your free consultation with Maverick Investor Group to talk about your real estate investing goals, get your questions answered about the current market dynamics, strategize about either your existing rental property portfolio or talk strategy about acquiring rental properties, all of those things are available to you. You can get a completely free phone consult with us. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult and we'll leave it there. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today and good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. 
If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.